If you have a copy of the Bible available to you, let me invite you to turn with me to Matthew's Gospel and the 13th chapter, the 13th chapter of Matthew's Gospel, and we're going to be reading from verse 53 into chapter 14. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13, reading at verse 53. And I imagine that if those of you who are pastors or preachers here this evening, if you were in my shoes, you might not choose this particular passage of scripture to preach on. It records a bizarre birthday party for a king named Herod, the ruler of a kingdom, a man who is haunted and half crazed by a troubled conscience. The party ends with the severing of the head of a man named John the Baptist, and that head was brought into the party on a platter. It's an extraordinary and remarkable story, and one that contains great tragedy, more tragedy perhaps than you would find in any of Shakespeare's works. But there are immense lessons that we can learn from this passage. It can only be described as highly dramatic, full of tension, full of suspense, And as we read it, you will notice that Matthew, in giving account of this story, uses what we would call the flashback method, recalling events that had previously taken place. And in doing that, he's introducing us to a number of characters that are part of the drama. Each character can teach us some lessons. He mentions John the Baptist, about whom we learn of a tragic end of a remarkable life. Then there is a woman named Herodias who demonstrates to us the ruthless influence of a hardened heart. And then there is Herodias's daughter who was an immature victim of an overbearing relationship. Each of these characters can teach us something if we had time to study them. So let's read together in Matthew 13 verse 53. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables that he departed from there. When he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. Now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. At that time... Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist, he's risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had said to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Therefore he promised with an oath 
to give her whatever she might ask. So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it, and went and told Jesus. Some of you may have read some reports over the past few days about perhaps the world's most well-known scientist, Stephen Hawking. His final book, which he had recorded, is Brief Answers to the Big Questions. And he makes one last effort to declare his atheistic views. And he says this, I quote, There is no heaven and no God. No one directs the universe. The afterlife is wishful thinking. So here is an example of somebody who simply refused and resisted the claims of God on his soul. The heavens declare the glory of God and the earth shows his handiwork. And yet this man says there is no God. And he has discovered the terrible reality of the things that he has refused to believe. And I want us to look at another man who did the very same kind of thing. King Herod was a man who deliberately resisted the claims of God upon his soul. And it's a story that stands as a corrective to the almost incredible capacity of the human heart when it's confronted with the word of God to believe that it doesn't matter, that you mustn't take the Bible or the things of God too seriously. It's the way of thinking, if you've ever read Gone with the Wind, Scarlett O'Hara, the main character in Gone with the Wind, her attitude was, well, after all, tomorrow is another day. Things will work out all right in the end. Well, things did not work all right in the end for Herod, and it is a reminder to us that it's possible for some people to go too far. And Herod went too far. It is possible to reject God and to reject the things of God and to pass into the darkness of a night on which no morning will ever rise. This is the story of a man who went beyond the point of no return. And I want to read just a verse of poetry that I read, I think, this time last year from this pulpit. There is a time, we know not when, a place we know not where, that marks the destiny of men in glory or despair. There is a line by us unseen that crosses every path, the hidden boundary between God's patience and his wrath. How long might I go on in sin? How long will God forbear? Where does hope end and where begin the confines of despair? And here is a man, Herod, a depraved, degenerate, debauched man, 
in mind and body and in actions. And Matthew relates this past incident in which John the Baptist confronted Herod directly about his immoral life and about his illegal wife. And that led to the imprisonment of John and then eventually to his cruel execution. And you can read a fuller account of that in Mark's Gospel and the sixth chapter. And Matthew then tells us that having executed John, Herod received reports about the fame and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And on receiving these reports, he seems to have a moment of blind terror. And Matthew then explains to us why that moment of terror should have taken hold of him. Herod thought that Jesus was John the Baptist, whom he had executed and he had come back from the dead. So at that point, Herod's conscience was troubling him troubling him about what John had preached and how he, Herod, had silenced both the preaching and the preacher. So here is this man, Jesus, who was preaching the very same things as John the Baptist. Now when you think about it, it's a wonderful testimony to John the Baptist that this should be thought, that he was so like the Lord Jesus in what he said and what he did. And then from verse 3 to verse 12, you're given another flashback to the circumstances of John's execution. And we are told that it happened at a party or a feast to celebrate Herod's birthday. And in order to appreciate what happened on that occasion, we need to remember certain characteristics about this King Herod. And the evidence from both within and out with Scripture leaves us in no doubt about the kind of man that Herod was and the kind of life that he lived. Early history said of him that he was cruel, scheming, vacillating, and utterly evil. He was a luxurious, profligate king. He had the morals of the farmyard, indulging in every carnal whim and passion. Our Lord spoke of him as that old fox. And it seems clear that both from Matthew's account and the account in Mark chapter 6, that Herod had been intrigued by, and he had shown resistance to, this man, John the Baptist. And Herod wanted to have John put to death, but we are told that he didn't because of the fear he had of the people. And Mark, in his gospel, suggests that Herod put John in prison in order to protect him from the the hatred of Herodias. She also hated John, and she wanted him killed, but Herod was too weak to resist her. So Herod, disconcerted, confused, wanted, and yet he did not want, to put John to death. And Mark tells us that when Herod heard John the Baptist, he was much perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. And J.B. Phillips, in his interpretation of that verse, says, Herod used to listen to him and be profoundly disturbed, and yet he enjoyed hearing him. And it is common for people to be pulled in two directions when they hear the gospel. I've known people who come to church out of curiosity just to see what goes on. And then the sermon makes them feel angry. So angry that they could have killed the preacher. And they've stormed out. But they couldn't help coming back again. 
And so you ask the question, why? And they couldn't tell you why. But they just couldn't stay, stay away. They hated the truth. And some people are so angry like that. But it's a great encouragement to the preacher. At least they're listening. They've not fallen asleep. Angry feelings are better than no feelings. And this is where it was with Herod. He's, his conscience is stirred. He's aroused by the word of God. He's spoken to by the spirit of God. But it's one thing to be stirred. But it's quite another thing to be stirred enough to seek after that peace which can only come through having peace with God. Now what was it that disturbed this man so much? Well, there is no doubt that it was the preaching of John the Baptist that plowed into this man's soul. And there is no doubt about what it was that John was preaching and speaking to him about either. John the Baptist would preach repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus was the Lamb of God, who alone could take away the sins of the world. John the Baptist would preach about judgment to come. That's the kind of preaching that John preached. And he left Herod in no doubt that he was a sinner. If you look at verse 4 of what it says in chapter 14. John had said to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So here is John publicly rebuking this arrogant king for open immorality. And when all the Jewish religious leaders who applied the law of God meticulously to ordinary people, they were silent. But John spoke openly and boldly to King Herod. And he puts his finger right on the problem and he accused him of marrying his brother Philip's wife. Not his widow but his wife, when Herod's own wife was still living. And Herod, violating his own marriage, had seduced his brother's wife, made her his own, putting his own wife away. It was a sinful, disastrous step which violated the law of Almighty God, openly, blatantly, and arrogantly. And it was for these sins that John the Baptist rebuked him. And he told him in no uncertain terms, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. He did not say it's not wise. He did not say that it's not fitting. He did not say that it's not honorable. He did not say that it's not expedient. He did not say that it's not safe or good. He said it is not lawful. You are breaking the law of God. Now put that into a modern context. You imagine that being said in royal circles today. You imagine that being said in the White House or in Westminster, it would cause a political earthquake. John reminds this earthly king that there is a higher authority to himself and to whom he one day will answer. There is a law of God which applies to kings and to courtiers as much as to anybody else. Monarchs, prime ministers, presidents are not above the law of God. And if they transgress the law of God, they need to be told. Nathan was sent in the Old Testament to speak to King David when he committed murder and adultery. John Knox, standing before Mary, Queen of Scots, she asked him whether he thought it right that the authority of rulers should be resisted. 
His reply was, if rulers and princes exceed their bounds, madam, they may be resisted and even deposed. Robert Bruce, another John the Baptist who succeeded Knox, became the minister of Larbert in Scotland. And one day Bruce was preaching and the king, King James V, was seated in the royal gallery with his courtiers. And the king was often notoriously rude during the services of worship. And on this occasion, he began talking to those around him while the sermon was being preached. And Bruce paused and the king fell silent. But when the preacher resumed, the king was guilty of another interruption and he was checked in the same way. And a third time it happened, whereupon Bruce turned to him and said this, It is said to have been an expression of the wisest of kings, when the lion roars, all the beasts of the field are quiet. The lion of the tribe of Judah is now roaring in the voice of his gospel, and it becomes all petty kings of the earth to be silent. How much we need a John the Baptist or a John Knox or a Robert Bruce in the day and age in which we find ourselves. Someone who will speak to nobility and to royalty and to politicians and to statesmen and tell them that they must take notice of the law of God. Where is the voice of a John the Baptist entering the Oval Office or 10 Downing Street and proclaiming it is not lawful? Now that kind of ministry is very costly and many a preacher has been the recipient of the most terrible abuse from people whose consciences have smitten them. They can't find fault with the truth so they'll find fault with the person who preaches it. They can't get rid of the pastor, they can't have him imprisoned but they'll see to him, see to it that they'll vex him, they'll annoy him, they'll tell lies about him so that it can be a very, very costly thing to preach the gospel of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. There is a price to be paid, and it cost John the Baptist his life. Under the influence of a young woman, the daughter of Herodias, Herod agreed to have John beheaded. John the Baptist, a man who was consumed with the honour of God, so much so that he was willing to lay down his life to maintain that honour. Now, his name has not been recorded in the annals of the great of this world, and the vast majority of people in this world have never heard of him. But in Luke chapter 7 and verse 24, our Lord sets his imprimatur on John, John the Baptist. He says this, Among them that are born of woman, there has not arisen a greater than John the Baptist. What a testimony, what an epitaph, and he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So if you are a Christian, don't be ashamed of Christ, and don't be intimidated by the world, and don't be afraid of men, and don't be discouraged if you don't make a name for yourself in this world. It is what Christ thinks of you that matters most of all. Rather lay down your life like John the Baptist and receive the commendation of Christ than to have the courtship and the honours of this world and to lose your own soul. 
Now look again at chapter 14 and verse 2. And Herod said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. So here is this report about the ministry of Jesus and his disciples. It comes back to Herod, and his conscience is being troubled once again. But it's one thing to have your conscience stirred. It is another thing for it to be so stirred that you do something about it. And here is Herod having John in prison. And what he was doing was simply temporizing. He's putting matters off. It was intolerable for this awakened, conscience-smitten king to be forced into making any decision. So he's buying time. He's sitting on the fence, putting things off, refusing to face the issues. But you cannot reach a compromise with the searching demands of the word of God. It doesn't matter who you are this evening. You can't compromise with the word of God. The word of God is what it is. There are things that God requires of you. There are things that God confronts you with. And you can't simply shrug it off. You can't simply temporize about it. Situations, circumstances will arise sooner or later when God will speak to you and he will force you to hear him. And God will see to it because you must remember that it's always God who calls the tune. It's God who is in charge of everything. It's God who takes the initiative in everybody's life. So here is this man having the issues forced upon him when he least expected it. And when the situation came, it came to a man who is already weakened by the fact that he's violated his own awakened conscience. He wouldn't listen to John's voice when John had warned him about Herodias. So there is this drunken feast to celebrate his birthday. And that was the stage for the showdown. And two women are the instruments that were used to bring Herod's downfall. It was a dazzling royal occasion. The wine is flowing. Everybody in the feast getting merrier and merrier. The climax of the feast comes when this beautiful, wanton young woman danced in front of them all. And then in a moment, in response to a sudden urge and impulse, in one act of bravado... Herod is carried away. Ask whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. Even to the half of my kingdom, I'll give it to you. And she tricked him. She said, give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And with what remnants of clear-headedness that remained to him, he must have realized that he'd been trapped by a scheming woman. And verse 9 clearly states that afterwards he was sorry. But there was something else apart from sorrow that prevented him from showing remorse. And that something else was public opinion. Keeping face before all of these people. And that was more important to him than to recognizing that he had broken the law of God. Look at verse 7. We are told that he made an oath in public to give Herodias' daughter whatever she wanted. So he's trapped. And instead of saying the promises which shouldn't have been made shouldn't be kept, he gave in for fear of what the courtiers would think of him. 
maybe they would think that he's really been affected by John's preaching or that he's even on the way to being converted to Christ. And Herod couldn't bear the very thought of what these courtiers would think or say. So he would not turn. He wouldn't come back. He's resisted, resisted to the point where he is now about to cross the line. And John the Baptist was killed by Herod. The executioner arrives. His head is placed on the block. A flash of steel. John is beheaded. His head is brought to Herodias. John the Baptist is dead. That's what Herod, and that's what the world thought. But he was more alive than ever before. He was gloriously and eternally alive. And he, being dead, continued to speak. And his ministry continued to have an effect. But Herod's conscience also died that day. And from this point on, he became increasingly hardened against the Christian gospel. And that moment of blind terror that's mentioned in verse 9 was merely the final twitching convulsions of something that's already died. He's like a dead corpse. He'll no longer to respond to any kind of outside stimulus. He's past the point of no return. And that's seen more clearly when you turn, if you turn for a moment, to Luke's Gospel, chapter 23. If you have your Bible available. If not, I'll read it to you. Luke's Gospel, chapter 23. And at verse 6. When Pilate heard of Galilee, this is concerning Jesus facing Pilate. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Then he questioned him with many words. Now notice, five words, but he answered him nothing. He's now face to face with the Son of God, face to face with Jesus of Nazareth, the one that has mystified him for so long, The one who was an enigma to Herod. And Jesus had troubled him. And he knew publicly that he wanted to be rid of Jesus. And now at last, Jesus is face to face with Herod. And there is still this great question mark in Herod's mind. But the writing is now on the wall. And the whole matter has long since become a circus to this man Herod. He simply wanted to be entertained by a miracle. Show us some miracle. You've been doing miracles. Show us a miracle. Perform one now. So he's pleading for a miracle. But Jesus answered nothing. Now, take notice of the picture. This man is standing before his divine judge. And he is not trembling, as he had trembled in front of John the Baptist. His conscience is now seared as with a hot iron. He is spiritually dead. He's crossed the line. He's reached the point of no return. The long day of opportunity has come to a close, and that day has found him still refusing. He still has arrogant contempt 
stubbornly rejecting the summons of God. And we are told that Herod and Pilate became friends and they were both happy. But they had both chosen wrongly. They may have gained the world, but they've lost their own soul. Those of you that are familiar with the old hymn, Abide With Me. It says, Abide with me, fast falls the eventide. And then it says, swift to its close, ebbs out life's little day. And God doesn't always tell us when the evening of our life will come. But all your days are numbered. And the Bible says that it's three score years and ten is the average. But God has the right to shorten those days as it suits him. And none of us know when the last day of our life will come. So these are the solemn issues that we are looking at in this man's life, but in each and every one of our lives. Here is the long day of opportunity, it's past, and the grace of God has been spurned. It's been laughed at. It's been lightly esteemed. So what is there left? The only thing that is left is judgment. And that's how it was with this man Herod. He would not respond to the grace of God. And Jesus now answered him nothing. And there are many, many people in this world just like Herod. And for all I know, there are people in this auditorium that are just like Herod. And you've dismissed the things of God. You've rejected God. You have no time for God. You're quietening your conscience. So let me conclude by saying three things. And the first thing is this. Herod was a man who had listened to the word of God, but he had never responded. And this whole passage is about the relationship of people to the word of God. So you have a man like John the Baptist who was absolutely committed to God's word. He wouldn't make it comfortable for Herod and for Herodias. He was strong with the word. This is not lawful. He would not tone it down. He wouldn't preach the things that he thought they might like to hear. He was clear in his message. And Herod had listened to the most profound and powerful preaching that has ever been given. And Mark tells us that Herod heard John gladly. Now put that into modern parlance. Herod heard John gladly. There are people who come into this church and into your church. And they go out on a Sunday. Oh, it was a great sermon. Never heard a word like that before. And it means nothing. They can listen gladly. Have you never come across that kind of thing? It is possible to be awakened and never converted. He heard the word of God from the greatest of preachers, from John the Baptist. There hasn't been a greater, says our Lord. He heard from our Lord Jesus Christ what he had done, what he had said. He'd heard from the disciples. They'd all brought the word of God before him. All Jerusalem was agog with the gospel. In Herod's own household, there was a woman named Joanna. Her husband was Herod's steward. And we are told that she ministered to Christ of her substance. Herod may have known all about her. He may have listened to her testimony. So God's word had invaded his life again and again, convicting him, 
convicting him, convicting him. And John's ministry was a ministry of repentance. You need to repent. That is the message of the Christian gospel. You need to repent. Whoever you are here this evening, young or old, God calls upon you to repent and to believe the gospel. What is that gospel? Well, said John, behold, there's the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the only one that can take away your sins, the only one who can make you right with God, the only one who can give you peace with God. So here is this man, he's listened and listened and listened, and he's stifled his conscience. And you may be here, and you're saying, well, I believe in God, and I believe in Christ, but where is the fruit of that? And when John the Baptist preached, he looked at religious people that went to church every week, And he said, you are the sperm of Satan. Bring forth fruits that will indicate that you have repented. And you may say, yes, I believe in God. Where is the evidence that you are believing in Christ? Where is that peace, that love, that grace that comes to people who have been changed by Christ? So it's possible to be a professing Christian and a practicing atheist. And you may go to church every Sunday, either this church or another church. It is possible to be a professing Christian and a practicing atheist. Where are the fruits of your repentance? Where is the evidence that you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? And I believe that God speaks to you If you're sitting under a faithful ministry, God's word comes to you. And I'm sure that God has placed his finger again and again and again on your life. Through the preaching of the word of God. You've been convicted about certain areas of your life. Things that you do, things that you say, the kind of person that you are. And it may well be that God is doing that at this very moment. But there are many, many people who hear, but they will not listen. And there are none as deaf as those that will not hear. And you can be moved by the word of God, you can be challenged by the word of God, you can be rebuked by the word of God and disturbed by the word of God, yet it is possible, like Herod, to do nothing about it. And I have found over the years many people who say that they're atheists, or they don't believe the Bible, or they don't want to hear the gospel. And they're often making those kinds of excuses when they're challenged by the gospel. We used to have a saying in our eldership in Emmanuel in Florida, the issue is not the issue. The issue is not the issue. The issue invariably with those people who say that they're atheists, that's not the issue. God puts his finger on people. And very often it is a matter of pride. They don't want to admit that they are sinful. They don't want to admit that they need Christ in their lives. It's also possible to be like Herod, to hear the word of God, refuse it, and you still come back for more. And you come to church week after week after week, and you hear the best of preaching, and you're doing nothing at all about it. But you keep on coming to hear it. 
it is possible to cross the line. Where does hope end and where begins despair? Listen to Spurgeon in a sermon on this very subject of our Lord before Herod. Spurgeon says, Herod is a type of some who frequently come to this tabernacle and occasionally go to other places of worship. People who were once under religious impressions and cannot forget that they were so, but who will never be under any religious impressions again. They are now hardened to vain curiosity. They wish to know everything that is going on in the church and in the kingdom of Christ, but they are far enough from caring to become part and parcel of it themselves. They like to gather together all the absurd stories which are told about ministers and to retell all the odd remarks that were ever made by preachers for centuries. All the gossip of the churches is sure to be known to them. They eat up the sins of God's people as they eat bread. It's not likely that their knowledge of religious things will be of any use to them, but they are ever eager after it. The church is their lounge. Divine service is their theatre. Ministers are to them as actors, and the gospel itself so much playhouse property. Let them look at Herod and see him in their leader, in him their leader, the type of what they really are or may soon become. Look at this man Herod and learn the lesson. Even this evening it may be the last call that God will ever send out to you and to your conscience and to your soul. And the fact that you have heard it again and again will add to your condemnation and to your eternal torment. That you were there, and you had the opportunity, and you had the invitation of Christ to come to him. So Herod was a man who listened to the word of God, but never responded. He was also a man with a weak will, who stifled his conscience. As I've mentioned before, John the Baptist's ministry was not some vague, uncertain, imprecise ministry. It was direct, it was forceful, it was powerful, it was God's word, and he related it to those who came under that word. And that word went like an arrow to Herod's conscience. He was spoken to about his adultery. He was spoken to about his incest. He reacted by imprisoning and then beheading John. Now remember that John was a man that Herod respected, but he had him killed. And the imprint that is left about Herod in this story is that here is a man with a weak will who is referred to as a king. He really was a ruler of half a kingdom, mainly the area of Galilee. But wherever you look at the lineage of this man, you discover that his family is mainly reminded or remembered because of their opposition to God and to the gospel. This man was the son of Herod the Great, who had slaughtered all the innocent children after the birth of Christ. He not only had the slaughter of John the Baptist on his conscience, but he was also the man who handed Jesus over to be crucified. So wherever you see this man, you see a man with a weakness, and it was a weak will and a violated conscience that was within him. And that conscience was a gift from God. And conscience, which Stephen Hawkins cannot explain, is a powerful monitor within the souls of every man and woman. 
And that conscience speaks forcibly to men, women and children. But that conscience can be ignored and it can be stifled and it can be silenced. And many a person reacts against their conscience by taking it out on other people. And so a wife suffers because of a husband who has a bad conscience. A husband can suffer because a wife has a bad conscience. Politicians can lash out at their opponents because they've been challenged by their conscience. Parents can suffer by, because of their son or daughter who has a bad conscience. Some young people want to leave home because they've got a bad conscience. Their parents are always reminding them of the word of God. So they want to go out into the world. They may go into a job and find there's another Christian there. It arouses their conscience. They want to find another job. And you ought to be thankful when God is speaking to your conscience. Because the time may come when your conscience no longer speaks to you. That's what happened with Horod. Now let me be clear upon this point. Judgment came upon this man, not because he was a terrible king. The judgment of God came upon him. He was a terrible king. It came upon him for the simple reason that he resisted the claims of God on his life. And that puts Herod on the same ground as each and every one of us. Men are not lost because they are gigantic sinners. They don't go to a lost eternity because of the enormity of their sins. They go to hell because they finally resist God and they refuse the claims of God upon their lives. Tyrants can be saved. Drunkards can be saved. Sensual, carnal sex addicts can be saved. Blasphemers can be saved. And it was Herod's continued impenitence, his persistent, stubborn refusal to respond to what God was saying to him by his conscience and by the word of God. He turned away from mercy again and again. And he turned away from mercy once too often. And that was the sin for which there was no remedy and no pardon. He'd crossed the hidden boundary between God's mercy and God's wrath. And the Lord was watching him from heaven, weighing him up, taking stock. And it was not his outward debauchery, but the inward state of his heart that was God's concern. He was a man who had chosen to be without God. My Bible tells me about a man in the Old Testament, in the book of Hosea, and his name was Ephraim, who wouldn't listen to God. And God said, Ephraim has turned to his idols. Leave him alone. Leave him alone. Don't let my spirit convict him. Don't let sickness bother him. Don't let him tremble under the preaching of the word of God. Leave him alone. Let him stand at an open grave, unmoved. Leave him alone. Let him watch other people die, unmoved. Leave him alone. Let him lie on his deathbed, unconcerned. Leave him alone.
It is a terrible thing to cross that line when God says, leave him alone. And when Herod comes face to face with Jesus, Jesus answered him nothing. And Pilate and Herod thought that they had judged Jesus. It was Jesus who had judged them. So where do you stand this evening? Do you like this man resisting God, silencing your conscience, listening to the word of God and enjoying the word of God, enjoying being in the company of God's people, a professing Christian but a practicing atheist? Is that your situation? How long can I go on in sin? How long will God forbear? None of us know. Let me close by reading just another poem as I do so. The spirit came in childhood and pleaded, let me in. But oh, the door was bolted by thoughtlessness and sin. I'm too young, the child said, I will not yield today. There's time enough tomorrow. The spirit went away. Again he came and pleaded in youth's bright happy hour. He came but heard no answer, for lured by Satan's power, the youth lay idly dreaming and saying, not today, not till I've tried earth's pleasures. The spirit went away. Again he called in mercy, in manhood's vigorous prime, but still he found no welcome. The merchant had no time, no time for true repentance, no time to think or pray. And so, repulsed and saddened, the spirit went away. Once more he called and waited. The man was old and ill, and scarcely heard the whisper. His heart was cold and still. Go, leave me. When I need you, I'll call for you, he cried. Then, sinking on his pillow, without a hope, he died. We began this service by listening to God's word in Psalm 95. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart. Come to Christ. You're not coming to your execution. You're coming to life. If you want to know life with a capital L, it's to be found in Christ. If you want to know peace of heart and peace of conscience, if you want to know joy, if you want to have a hope for the future, if you want to know the presence of God with you day by day, guiding you, comforting you, helping you, if you want to know that you have that glorious hope that the moment you die you will awake in the presence of Christ, it's all to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, come, come. It may be if you don't come, And you stand before him, as Herod did. He may say to you, did you never ever hear about my son? Did nobody ever tell you about the gospel? Did nobody ever show you how it would be that you could come and enter into eternal life? What are you going to say? 
Listen to the voice of Christ pleading with you, urging you, come unto me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden, I will give you rest. And this evening, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Let's bow together in prayer. Let us all pray. Our God and our Father, we bow before you and we bow before your word and we thank you for this word. We thank you for the glorious gospel of our glorious God. We thank you that there is a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. There's a door that is open and we may go in. At Calvary's cross is where we begin as we come as sinners to Jesus. Grant those who are still outside of Christ grace to repent. Give them faith to believe. We trust you to do it. For Christ our Saviour's sake. Amen.